opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Summer. And I'm Jennifer. And this is episode 44, The Georgia Massacre of 1973, Possibly Part 1. So I told you, I have (laughs) finished the book. (laughs) Yes. Brothers in Blood was the book that I read by Clark Howard. But not Clark Howard, the finance guy, right? No, no, that's how everyone remembers his name. (laughs) But it was a a different guy, yeah. And he's the same guy who wrote Zebra. And you like his style of writing. I do. When he writes his books, they're like in a, a novel style. So it's easier for me to read. But some stuff is kind of like you wish he kind of wrote it in like a documentary or biography, nonfiction type of style, right? Mm-hmm. But I will say I finished this book at like 3 a.m. one morning and it was disturbing. You know, it's a ve- this is a very disturbing case. Is this like when you had the Hello Kitty episode? And you finished at like one or something in the morning and then you woke up and your computer was on and it freaked you out. Yeah, it was kind of like that. I guess the difference is like the events of this case just stayed in my mind and it's just like a horror movie. Like you just watched a really scary horror movie, but it was real. In this episode, we're going to discuss the monstrous massacre of six members of the Alday family. This was the second worst mass murder in Georgia history at the time. And I was talking to you about this the other day, um, but with all like the mass shootings and stuff, I can't say like that's an accurate number today. Yeah. But I do want to read the synopsis of this book because I think it does a good job of like summarizing it. And then if people are interested, they can choose to read it. It's not on Audible or anything. So you actually have to read the book paperback (laughs) open it up flip the pages i know that's why it took me so long because (laughs) typically i could just listen to a book but not this time not this time no so the synopsis is it is may 1973 in rural georgia three white brothers and a black friend all urban delinquents from baltimore all escapees from prison on quote vacation in a stolen car stop on the backwoods roads to burglarize a mobile home While they are inside, the occupants and their relatives, a father, his three grown sons, an uncle, a pretty young wife, arrive home from work. All six are brutally murdered. In his previous books, Clark Howard proved that he could probe the minds of people who murder to find out why they murder. Now, he not only re-examines the act of murder itself, but also dissects the murderers' lives from birth to death row. More importantly, despite their cold-blooded crime, Howard accomplishes the extraordinary feat of establishing a measure of sympathy, not for the criminals as they are, but as they might have been. And in the book, um, they do change some names of people involved just to hide their identities, and some people don't want their name out there. So, Other victims, or...? Not the victims and not the murderers. But just the people involved in, like, the backstories. Okay. So, But these are all true accounts of what happened. Exactly. So let's kind of set the scene. Carl Isaacs was born on August 9th, 1953. He was one of 12 kids. His parents, Archie and Betty Isaacs, 
So Betty had her first five children with her first husband, Carson Coleman, and then later had seven more with Archie. Oh, the second litter. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this was back in the day when I guess that was kind of like the thing to do. You had kids so they could work on the farm, right? Yeah. And she was not, unfortunately, she was not a very attentive mother. Well, 12. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, you would think that you'd have 12 kids and you have like the intention of taking care of them, right? Or at least like... How did she even remember all of their names? I have three kids and I mess up. I flip the boys' names all the time. Oh. How did you get 12 kids' names right? There's no way. I bet she didn't. (laughs) I can almost guarantee it because she was never home anyway. Where was she? She was either at her waitressing jobs or she was at the bar with her friends after work. (laughs) Okay. She's mom of the year. I guess she was just like a baby-making machine or something. She's like, I did my part. She was very fertile. So was the dad raising the kids now? Yes, Archie was the one mainly raising the kids. Well, good. So, and he actually enjoyed doing that, but I don't think that he was never, like, encouraged or supported. You know, it was always just like, just do it, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Well, in her defense, I mean, she gave him, what, seven kids? Or is he the five-kid litter? He was the seven kid. Yeah. You know, give a man seven children, he should figure out what to do. He did, but she didn't do anything on her end. (laughs) (laughs) But she gave birth to seven children. (laughs) That's true. That's true. That may have been their deal. Somehow. I don't know if he signed up for that, (laughs) but... (laughs) But did she sign up for seven children? Maybe. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) This is a whole other story we'll get into. It it is, yeah. times. (laughs) But... (laughs) I do like the name Archie, though. Was it short for Archibald? No. Can we um, pretend it's short for Archibald? Sure. <laughs> so, because he wasn't getting, like, the respect he wanted or the appreciation, I guess, he yeah, wanted. woman. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you just had my seven children. I want some respect. Yeah. I mean, you see, like, I'm taking care of your first five kids. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, hold on. So, Archibald is taking care of the first five and the seven of his. Yes. Okay. So he's taking care of all the, all 12 kids. I mean, I have a lot of respect for that man. That's a lot Me of children. Too. Isn't that a basketball team? You know sports, right? No. Because you saw one game. <laughs> you saw a game, so you know sports. I would consider myself a, an expert now. Yeah, somebody let us know. Like, email us. Is, is 12 people a basketball team? I think it would I be. would say so. It sounds like it. Like that sounds dozen, like enough players. Right? A dozen. Yeah. yeah. He had a basketball team. He did. Yep. Like I said, he wasn't like, he was doing it. He liked it. Wasn't getting appreciation for it because his wife was just drinking at the bar. Probably to forget that she had 12 children at home that she had to take care of. Yes. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, I'll let you handle that. (laughs) So they would fight all the time. And then one day, I guess she just like was threatening him to leave if he really wanted to. And then he did and he never came back. So. Oh, so he ended up leaving Yeah, her and the 12 children. Yep. Wow. So that left one of his older sisters to take care of the rest of the kids. Okay. Um, her name was Ruth. This is Carl's older sister? Yes. She was um, a Coleman. So she was the first. From the first letter. Yeah. So she was one of the older kids. Okay. Did she do a better job? She, Yeah, she tried to. She would care for them, like, as best as she could, and she, like, eventually got married and moved away. So Carl hated school, and he would always make up excuses not to go. I think that's pretty standard. Probably a lot of children, yeah. I remember doing that 
when I was a kid. <laughs> I just don't feel like going. I have a headache, <laughs> right? <laughs> so their family like actually moved around a few times. And so he hated like having to learn new rules and acclimate to the new students and teachers. And one day, Carl and his three siblings came home from school and no one was home. Out of 12 kids, nobody's home. No. Are they just at school? They don't mention what happened to the other kids, but you kind of assume they went there's into the nobody. They care system. Probably. Yeah. Or they were old enough that they could go and move on and do their own thing, just like with Ruth. Like, it seems like the Colemans were the older set of siblings, so they probably had moved, moved on. Moved away. Yeah, and had their own lives. Um, was he the youngest of the seven? He was, like, in the middle okay. of the second batch. Okay. So there still should have been some kids around. Right. Yes. He was with some of the other siblings, though. So they were probably like, well, yeah. where is everybody? So he talked to the landlord, tried to contact his mom. She didn't answer. He called Ruth, and she came to pick them up. Ruth gave up trying to contact their mom. I think they kind of knew she was, like, a deadbeat. Yeah. And so... For two months, she did her best to care for the kids. But, I mean, as you can imagine, money was tight. And she didn't expect to have to spend a bunch of money on these kids that she was taking <laughs> 11 on. 11 children. <laughs> um, I don't think she took on 11. But she took on a few more kids than she had expected. And so when they would go to school, they would wear, like, worn-out clothes. And their shoes were, like, falling apart. And then, of course, the teachers noticed. And then they called the Maryland welfare authorities. So they said that the siblings were being bullied and thought that Carl might do something violent if it wasn't addressed because apparently he had been in fights before. Two social workers showed up and when it was determined that their parents couldn't be located, they were all placed in foster care. They were separated and sent to live with different families. That same day, they're like taken to welfare services and they have no idea what's going on. They just, all they know is that they don't have their mom and they don't know where she is and they aren't going back to their sister's house and they're just like oh well here are your here's your new families it's gotta be hard and they're all separate like they're not kept yeah together, they didn't so. them together yeah so as carl was taken in the social worker's car he's asked if he's ever been to glencoe and he says no and then once they were in glencoe he was introduced to his new family the denmarks the Denmark's family consisted of Jennifer and Edward Denmark and their son, Jackie. Immediately, Carl could tell that he was treated differently from their birth son. Jackie had his own room. He could basically do whatever he wanted, and he was given more affection. And Carl wasn't allowed to have his own room, and his bed was located in the corner of the basement. Jackie would get new clothes, and Carl would get hand-me-downs or discounted clothing. He was made to have, like, very strict rules and had to help Edward with his part-time lawn care business while Jackie didn't have to. He didn't mind working with Edward, though, because he kind of, like, looked up to him. But he didn't like how he was treated by Jennifer because she always forced him to call her mom and just showed, like, blatant favoritism in front of him. He lived there for about two years when a murder-suicide happened in the neighborhood. The house was avoided, as you can imagine, by most people, but one night, Jennifer took Carl to that house in the rain and said she was fed up by his behavior. She said that the people in the house died because they were up to no good, and that's why their lives ended that way. She threatened that if he didn't get his act together, he would end up with that same fate, 
And he cried and said that he had nightmares about the house that same night. She doesn't sound that much better than his mom. No, she she's she present, wasn't, but she's like psychological abuse. Yeah. She always made him like finish his food, yelled at him, and he kind of could feel like I'm not really a member of this family. I'm just here because they're getting a paycheck. The murder suicide that happened, it was like this married couple and the husband was having an affair and the husband actually killed the mistress and himself in the house in that house yeah and so it became like this scandal in the neighborhood and that's why she said like oh those people were up to no good so if you're up to no good then you're gonna end up like that poor kid i'm sure he didn't understand what was going on right so when carl was 13 the denmark signed the kids up for the boy scouts they didn't ask him if he wanted to join but said it would be good for him He ended up actually enjoying the Boy Scouts because he finally felt like an equal. He and Jackie would be treated the same and they'd wear the same outfits. One night, he and a few friends caused some mischief by unhooking one of the other scoutmates' tents and having it fall on whoever was inside. Sounds like innocent mischief. That's what you would think, right? Just kids being silly, yeah. Kids being kids. So apparently they ran into their don't, own don't tent. Don't tell me he like set it on fire after. <laughs> no, no, it's nothing, nothing like that. No, it was quite innocent. Okay. In my opinion. But I guess the scoutmasters were overwhelmed by like the rowdiness of the boys and they were just like, you know, kind of doing what they wanted falling. to. Well, not just that. I guess it had been accumulating. Just Carl or just like a, the group? Was Carl just, an instigator? I think it was just the group of boys. And okay. I get a group of boys together. No, no, like Lord mischief. of the Flies, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you kind of expect that, but I guess the scoutmaster at the time, he was overwhelmed and he wanted to make an example of them. Uh-oh. So he suspended them and said they couldn't partake in any of the activities anymore. No and s'mores? None. Oh. No. Couldn't wear the uniforms. Couldn't partake. Well, that's in... not too bad. The uniforms aren't great. <laughs> but no s'mores? No s'mores, no. So what do you make them do? Just sit in their collapsed tent? They basically just had to be non-participants. At a campground? Yeah. It already until... sounds awful. Um, because I love not camping. That's I know. my favorite thing to do. It doesn't sound fun to me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but apparently they enjoyed it. So it kind of sucked that like... He finally found something that he... He enjoyed, like, right? Yeah. And, maybe a good outlet. But one fallen tent, and he turns to a life of crime? Well, no, actually. <laughs> after, like, they were sent home. Remember Jackie, right? The birth son. Uh-huh. So he's the, he was the one who snitched, first of all. Of course. Yeah. Oh, Jackie. Yeah. So he snitched, and then, as they were, like, walking home after being dropped off by the bus, Carl's like, you know, please don't tell the parents, because I don't want to get in trouble, and he's like, oh, I'm telling. Like, of course he is. Yeah. Yep. And so Carl was kind of like over it. He was like, I'm so sick of this guy. Like he's stitching on me. He gets treated better than I do. And so he ends up punching him. <laughs> <laughs> he punches Jackie. Yeah. By the time they were like at the front of the yard of the Denmark's house, things had escalated. Like I said, he punched him. Violence is never the answer. No, it's not. He should have just given Jackie a wedgie or something. <laughs> you know? I, I mean, that would have been would have been better, I suppose. Punching is just, that's not, not good. We, yeah, don't approve of violence. Mm-hmm. After he was punched in the face, he screamed 
and that alerted Jennifer, and she saw what was happening in her front yard. So she pulled Jackie away and started punching Carl in the face. And the like, mom yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and she basically was beating him so hard. And, like, oh. he was trying to, like, crawl away, and he couldn't even get away. And so he just, like, got into fetal position and until, like, she stopped. Oh, wow. And then took Jackie back inside. And then, you know, he, he was crying, and he was left on the lawn, and then he, like, wiped his blood and tears from his face. <laughs> his and then, blood and tears. Oh, my yes, gosh. Yes, I remember he's only 13. Like, uh, he's, just a, he's just a kid. He's having a rough time, isn't he? Oh, my gosh. And it just gets worse. So he was running away. He's like, screw this place. <laughs> and then he, he hears Mr. and Mrs. Denmark, like, calling after him, but... He's, he's just, like, I'm done. Yeah. So he runs away officially, like he's gone. Yeah. As he was running away, a car stopped by and asked him if he needed a lift. Stranger danger. Yeah, he was a little skeptical, but he still got in. The driver ended up taking him to his sister Ruth's house, where he waited, but no one was home. And so he sat for a while until he saw a police officer, and he assumed that the officer was looking for him, because the Denmarks probably called the police on him. Right. So he realized that he probably wouldn't be able to stay with his sister because the police knew where his sister lived and they would probably keep looking for him there. So he hid, and when the officer left, so did he. He thought about how he didn't have a home to go to and how he felt very alone and no one to count on. But he remembered he had a grandmother in Fawn Grove, Pennsylvania, and decided he would go to her. And now remember, he's in Maryland right now. So he's thinking, okay, I'm going to go to Pennsylvania. To Without a car. Well, take a bus. What's he going to do? Well, I will tell you. On his walk, he entered a gas station and asked for a map. And remember, he has no money either. So the attendant, he was reluctant to help him, but he... He did, eventually, and he gave him directions on how to get to Fawn Grove. That's how much he didn't want to go back. Well, grandmas are awesome, so. I know. I hope she is. She ends up, yeah, she ends up being good. Okay, that's good. So from the gas station in Maryland to Fawn Grove, Pennsylvania, he had 34 miles to go. He was able to hitch a ride with some teenagers that drove him 12 miles in that direction, but then he had to walk the remainder of the way by himself. And he only had a packet of peanut butter crackers that the gas station attendant brought him. So I, I'm thinking about this. 34 miles. How long would it does it take you to walk 34 miles? Well, we can do it right now. Let's Google. <laughs> See how long it takes. Well, you gotta. we got to take off 12 miles because they drove him 12 miles. We have to take off 12 from 34? Yeah. He was going from Maryland to Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. So what, roughly 12 hours? 13 hours, maybe? Okay. You don't usually sign up for that unless it's like a marathon or something like that. I mean, 12 hours. No. No. By the time he made it to his grandmother's house, he was exhausted, starving, and his feet were bloody and blistered. His grandmother was shocked to find him in that condition, and she wasn't even expecting him, so I'm sure that was a shocking thing to find. Because his face probably didn't look good either because he had been beaten up. Yeah. That same day, right? Exactly. He just probably looked like a mess. He did. So his grandmother was shocked, but she fed him, she gave him clothes, she cleaned him, and she took care of him for a few days. He told his grandmother that he was happy, and that this was the first time he ever said that in his life. Aww. (laughs) I know. He thought about, like, how if it was his new life, he could help her around the house, and then he could get a job, and then eventually, like, make his way back to the gas station to pay the attendant for, like, helping him. But he doesn't do that. 
Well, it doesn't happen because, unfortunately, Why? the police showed up to take him back. Oh, they knew about the grandma? They found out somehow. Darn it. So yeah. the police intervened. They did, and she didn't really put much of a fight up either. She was like, you know, you're a ward of the state, and she was basically too old. She had old. no rights. Yeah. Yeah. Because she was like, I'm older now. I can't really care for you. And so, unfortunately, that's what happened. And then um, they took him back, and the welfare workers tried to place him back with the Denmarks, and nobody wanted that. So he was instead placed in reform school. Now, while he was in reform school... Which I'm guessing didn't reform him. No. (laughs) He was shocked to be met with fellow inmates threatening to sexually assault him in his sleep. So he was obviously terrified by this. He was smart, though. He created a shank with one of his bed springs. Resourceful. Yeah. He's like, y'all aren't going to get me. And so one night, a group of boys attempted to jump him, but he was ready with his shank, which surprised them. And then they left him alone after that. He stayed there for about nine months, working in the gardening section until he was released to his new foster family, Frank and Edna Wardhall. Wardlaw. What? Those are two different words. It's Wardlaw. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, you know, forgive me. I have a lot of reading today. So... Um, he had a good life with them and their daughter, actually. That's good. So her name was Grace, the daughter, and he was enrolled in Arden Junior High. But he struggled with academics since he was so far behind in school. Yeah. And then at that age, you know, girls, they become a, you know, distraction. He became distracted because he was in high school now or middle school still. He was in middle school. He met a girl named Jane. And they pretty much became infatuated with each other immediately. It was to the point where they would skip school to go have sex at her place. And then eventually... Was this protected sex? No, of course (sighs) not. Of course not. Does Jane get pregnant? No. His family is very fertile. (laughs) No. So she needs to watch out. No babies. Oh, Jane. But eventually they were caught by her mom, which got him in trouble with his new family. They punished him by shaving his hair off. And he went into a rage. The hair on his head? Yeah. What? They just shaved his head? Yeah. You had sex, we're going to shave your head. Yeah, that was their form of punishment, I guess. Because people won't want to have sex with him with a shaved head? Maybe. I don't know. I'm married to a man with a shaved head. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Well, I guess in middle school that might be different. I don't think I was ever drawn to any bald um, middle schooler. I, I guess I can say the same. Yeah, I can't say that I was. So. <laughs> okay, so maybe they have a point. <laughs> yeah. Parents, just shave your children's heads if you don't want them to have sex. Is that the message? I think so. I, I think it was just like... I will not do that. That's terrible. I know. Don't do that. <laughs> Obviously, he was pissed about that. And, you know, he started cussing them out. It's he like, ran away. It's like oh for 3 for parents now. This Gosh. is bad. He ran away, and then in two hours, he was caught and placed back in the reform school. He's not good at hiding, (laughs) (laughs) is what you're telling me. No. I mean, you wouldn't expect a middle schooler to be that good at hiding from the police, right? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. He's bald, though, now, so he could disguise himself as an old man. I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know if he had face was Put on a mustache (laughs) and and a hat and a trench coat. That little old man doing 
<laughs> walking down the street. That poor kid. Can't be a child. It's bald, you know? Uh, well, they wouldn't have thought so. You never know, I guess. What did they tell the police? Oh, look for our child who is bald now because we shaved his head? Probably. Oh, my gosh. Now, the second time he was in, it was easier for him. You know, he knew the ropes. shanks and stuff. Oh, yeah. He was like, don't mess with me. I already know how things run around here. (laughs) He was told he'd be serving another six months, but was not released by that time. And so he worked garbage detail with another inmate named Jock, who was a few years older. And they talked about escaping from time to time. But after he realized he wasn't getting out after the six months had passed, he finally took Jock up on that offer. And apparently garbage detail was like the worst job there. And so he's like, I have to do this for like longer than six months, like initially, Mm. like what you guys told me I was going to be in here for. So he's like, screw that. A boys reform school. You know, that garbage was just nasty. Yeah. So they dug up under a nearby fence, hotwired a stolen car, and drove around York and Harryburg. For- hotwired a car? Is this the 60s? 70s? This is the 70s. 70s. Okay. I was like, hotwiring cars. That's very... That's old school. So it's old school, for <laughs> sure. Um, so they drove around for about four days. They would burglarize stores and homes. Jock showed him how to pick locks, spring a window, pry open a skylight. I've shown you how to pick a lock. You have, yeah. Actually, yeah. when I lock myself out of my house, it helps. <laughs> <laughs> but now you have a very safe, secure house, so it wouldn't work. That's true, yeah. It, yeah, this is before when Jennifer didn't realize safety. And then I showed her. <laughs> How easy it was. How easy, I, was like, it. I was like, so if I can do this, a non-criminal, <laughs> Jennifer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now it's deadbolts and... Security systems. Security systems, video cameras, and a horse. And a horse. Yeah, she's come a long way. Good luck. So proud of her. To whoever tries (laughs) to mess with me. Yeah, Yeah, good luck is right. (laughs) Dolce's got him. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Jennifer had to ride her out to the backyard (laughs) (laughs) so we could record because she was ready to play. And it's like playing with a horse bear. It really is, yeah. We digress back to the uh, crimes. Most of the time, they only ended up with a few dollars when they would burglarize these places. But over those four days, they committed 30 burglaries. That's a lot. That is a lot. Wow. But they were eventually caught after Jock drank some beers and wrecked the car. And since Jock was older, he was charged as an adult and taken to jail. Carl was sent back to the reformatory and put into solitary confinement for 60 days. After the 60 days were up, the welfare office placed him with his new family, Leonard and Virginia Romanski. So now he's on family four. Yes. And they basically only gave him 60 days because they figured that Jock was like a bad influence on him. And so they kind of gave him some, some slack. So they knew about like his troubled past and they agreed to let Carl see his sister Ruth and his mom within reason. And I think they thought like, if we give him the freedom to see his family, that'll kind of help him, right? That makes sense. Yeah, I think they had good intentions there. Because Ruth was a good influence. She was almost like a mother figure to him, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. She always remained that way as well, which was very nice. It it showed she had, like, a really good character, you know? Like, she really cared about them. Okay, so family number four sounds like they're trying to do a good thing. They are. So their kids, they weren't enthused about Carl joining the family, and he overheard them saying that they hoped he would visit his family and not return back. Kids can be mean. I know. 
were kids this mean back then? Maybe they yes, were. Yes, they absolutely were. Always mean. Always mean. <laughs> So Ruth, she was really happy to see Carl, but when he met his mom, she was very indifferent. She just, she asked him if he would ever learn to be a good boy, and he asked if he'd be able to, like, come live with her, and she said, no, I think things are fine the way they are. <laughs> She's like, I finally got rid of all my children. Yeah. So I'm just keeping it like this. She she basically liked not being responsible for anyone else, you know? <laughs> That's sad. So she was like, eh, you know, you figure it out. No. Be good. Like I said, mom of the year. So he left their house basically feeling hopeless. Like he didn't want to return to that other home that didn't want him. And he walked through a parking lot of a nearby shopping center. He found an unlocked car and tried to remember how Jock showed him how to hotwire it. And a security guard had been watching him the entire time he like entered that parking lot. And Carl was in handcuffs soon after that. And he said that this day was like a turning point for him. Like he didn't care what happened to him anymore. That's probably because what his mom said, I'm sure. Yeah. Felt rejected. Like if your mom doesn't want you around, like that's the one person you feel like, okay, like I can always go to my mom. She's going to love me unconditionally. Yeah. And I think that was always kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel. He's like, if I can just see my mom, yeah. like she'll be the one to like take care of me that's and things so will be sad. okay. And she didn't even want him. So I think that was really a realization for him. Like, I don't care about what happens to me anymore. So that hope died in him, I'm sure, after that. I think so, yeah. So after this arrest, the last reform school he was in was the Madison Boys' home. He was there for four months before he was ready to escape. He met a security guard who told him that he already helped two boys escape who were living with him and was willing to help him because he liked him. Carl eventually agreed to this. And the security officer successfully snuck him out in his 1969 Chevrolet. He met the two, quote, roommates. He learned that he would have to allow the officer to perform oral sex on him in exchange for room and board. How old is he at this time? Um, He's not an adult yet. So like Still maybe minor. Teens, yeah. Oh. He was helping the boys escape for his own benefit. Just want to have oral sex with young sick. boys. Yeah. He's a predator. Yep. Yeah. He spent most of his days watching movies, window shopping, and going to the park, playing billiards, and, like, he started to feel like maybe this is what freedom is. The officer would host parties at his apartment once a month, and that's where he met a girl named Sharon. They got along quickly and became romantically involved. They talked about running away together, and then when word got around to one of Sharon's friends, the friend's boyfriend talked to Carl about making money. Like, he was like, if you guys are going to run away, you need money, right? Mm -hmm. So he moved in with Sharon and her friend and her boyfriend, and they made a promise that he and Sharon would move to Florida once he saved up $20,000. He recruited him as a partner to drive around the country and burglarize liquor stores. They committed about 39 armed robberies for about nine months until they were stopped at a toll bridge. There were stakeout officers in the booth who were armed with shotguns. Carl was still a fugitive because he escaped that reform school. And since Carl was a fugitive, he was now an adult in the eyes of the law and was sent to Maryland State Prison. After he was sentenced, he tried his best to stay to himself in prison. But during a prison riot, five inmates appeared at his door cell and sodomized and brutalized him for over eight hours. After that incident, the corrections system decided that he was newly 18 
and there were much older seasoned prisoners there, and they would be, like, detrimental to his reformation. After this happened? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yep. Good realization. Hindsight, Jeez. I suppose. But he needed to be transferred somewhere else. And then 10 days later, he was transferred to the Maryland Correction Camp. And then on April 25th, he was transferred to the Minimum Security Poplar Hill Correction Camp. His life sounds awful from it the does. start. I don't know what he's done yet, but... I mean, he's been rejected time and time again by his own family, these foster families, just put in reform school mm-hmm. to... Do what? To just be punished and yeah, abused in prison. Yes. Do you feel like he is a created killer? Yeah. Like by his his upbringing, his circumstance? I do. I do think yeah. that if things were different for him, maybe what happens later wouldn't have happened. Right. Like if he had grown up in a loving home or even got to live with his grandma. Like there's like so many turning points that could have been better for him. And just all the adults failed him in his life. Yeah. Except for sister. She sounds like she really tried. She really tried. It sounds like her hands were tied because he was in the foster care system. And that was the state's responsibility. And so, you know, she, but she really did try. And you have to acknowledge that. But it was just sad because he couldn't stay with her. Maybe if he had just stayed with her, like things would have been a, a little better. So at Poplar Hill Correction Camp, he was reunited with his half brother, Wayne Coleman, who was 26 at the time. And he's 18 now, right? Yes. Okay. Similarly, Wayne had been in and out of different institutions his whole life. He tried to make a living doing what he called pick and shovel work or like common labor jobs. His dad, Carson Coleman, was never around. So the only father that he ever knew was Archie until he left. After he left, all the kids had been separated and he tried to make things work on his own, but he got arrested for charges like breaking and entering, robbery and committing a felony with a deadly weapon. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. After serving two years, he was transferred to Poplar Hill for good behavior. While he was there, he would do more common labor work. And that's where he met George Dungy. So wait, Carl and Wayne are brothers. They're half brothers. Half brothers. Okay. Yeah. And George, he's not related. Um, George is, is he just a friend? He's more than just a friend. So... <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Tell us more. Let me tell you. So George was 36 years old and he was in for non-payment of child support, which is, I guess, the most non-violent offense, right? Right. Or it's it's a non-violent offense. His personality was described as aloof and slow moving. Like he really just did things on his own time. He didn't have much motivation for anything. Um, even when he learned he was having a kid. <laughs> <laughs> It's not feeling it, so I'm not going to pay my child support. Okay. On my own time, if I feel like it, maybe. (laughs) So while he was at Poplar Hill, he was harassed by fellow inmates because he was black. And Wayne noticed him being harassed, and he helped him, like, on different occasions. Like, when George first got there, Wayne, like, helped him. Like, he had lost his glasses, and he found his glasses, helped him, and they became friends after that. And after they became friends, they started becoming involved romantically oh yeah wayne and george yeah Mm -hmm. they go behind the bleachers you know and that (laughs) and then and uh, what (laughs) you know what happens back there (laughs) sexy time (laughs) behind the bleachers (laughs) um so carl talked his brother into the idea of escaping and wayne's only condition was being able to bring george 
But Carl did not like George because he was black and agreed that if that's what Wayne wanted, he was going to do it, I guess. So Carl was racist. Yeah. And I don't know if that was always in him or if it was because, like, the men who gang raped him were all black in prison. In prison? Yeah. So it's hard to say, but he did not like him. So George was actually about to be released in five months. So he could have just stayed there and been released, but... Gone on because, with his life. Yeah. But because Wayne wanted to escape, I think Wayne convinced him that, like, Come you're just going to be, well he, well, he was like, you're just going to get back in here anyway. It's going to be a never-ending cycle. And so on May 5th, 1973, the three men climbed through a bathroom window and they hid in the woods. They made their way into Baltimore where they stole a blue Thunderbird. When authorities at Poplar Hill were notified that the three men escaped, they didn't alert outside authorities that their capture was top priority because their criminal histories didn't reflect anything especially violent or dangerous at the time. So while on the run, Carl insisted they go look for their 15-year-old brother, Billy. Who's Billy? Billy is actually his blood brother. Okay, full brother. Yes. Okay. So he is... He's from the second letter. Yes, he is um, an Isaac. And I do just want to, like, highlight... They escaped, right? Mm -hmm. But they didn't tell outside authorities because, obviously, at that time, nothing was dangerous about them. Like, one was in for child support, non-payment of child support. There were, like, some burglaries. Although I will say that Carl had, like, armed robbery, you know. That's severe. But they hadn't murdered anybody up to this point. Right. There were no murders. So I want to talk about Billy, because I think Billy, I probably do actually feel bad for Billy was also a child who was passed around in the foster care system. His most recent foster family had him work manual labor to provide them with money. He hated going to school because he basically knew that after school, he was going to be forced to work on this horse farm. You know, he had like the worst equipment. He had like he was working with other other kids and he had the hand-me-down equipment. It was stinky. It was like not fun, you know. So when his grades declined because he was so consumed with dread that he couldn't focus on school um, or he was so exhausted from work, his foster mom punished him by beating his head against the wall over and over again. Oh my gosh, foster situations for these kids. I know, it really makes you feel like they were so bad at the time. I don't know if they're any better, you know? Yeah, I I think it's probably the same as it's always been. There's some good and some bad. It seems like they just keep getting bad, you know? Well, these kids have just gone through it. Yeah. Yeah. So he felt like he never belonged anywhere and was always nervous and he was like quick to cry. One year, he met a young girl who was like one of his neighbors and they quickly fell for each other. He would go over to their house and eat and watch TV. He started to feel comfortable and thought maybe like this is what love is. Sounded like, you know, young puppy love, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So Carl had shown up before and asked him to visit Ruth and their mom together. So this is in the past. Like, one time, Carl just showed up, found Billy, and was like, let's go see Ruth and my mom. When they went there, no one was home, and Carl suggested that they sneak into the house, but Billy was not comfortable with that. They ended up doing it anyway, and Carl looked in his mom's drawers. He found a bag of money that was hidden, and he felt entitled to it. He was like, you know what? Our mom never cared for us. She owes us this money. Like, whatever. We're taking it. It's kind of a good argument. (laughs) Like, she's never taken care of us our whole lives. This is the least (laughs) least she could do, right? I Um, I can't be too mad about that. Yeah. So they took the money, and then Billy fell asleep with the purse in his hands. 
And then his mom came home and realized that one of her kids stole her money. Wait, so they were going to steal money, but before they leave with the money, they fall asleep with the purse in their hands? No, at that time they had already like left and went to Carl's girlfriend at the time's apartment. Okay, so this was just Billy. They like gave him the purse and was like, here you go. And he, he fell asleep with it? He just fell asleep with it, yeah. Like, no one else was home. I think they left. Did they set him up to make it look like he did it? I don't think they set him up. I just was think it was sleeping just like, and they put the purse there? I don't know if he was, like, holding it and just fell asleep because he was so tired or, like, what the case was. It's but like somehow... Robbery is just exhausting. I'm just going to fall asleep right now. I don't know. It doesn't sound like he was set up, though. It just sounds like it just happened that way. Huh. And they should have hit it, and they didn't. Or they should have put it away, and they didn't. Hold, I'll hold on to it to secure it, Literally right? Caught with the purse in his hands. Basically, yes. But what I do think is funny is, like, his mom was like, one of my dang kids took my money. Like, she knew, right? <laughs> one of my 12 kids. <laughs> Who could it be? Probably not Ruth. She's too busy. Although she deserves it. So after he was woken up by the police officer, he was sent to Bay Village Reformatory for six months. While he was in reformatory, he cursed Carl for visiting him and his mom for keeping that money in that drawer. He decided that he wanted to do better for him and for his girlfriend. So while he was there, he kept a spotless record during the six-month sentence. The welfare workers told him that they were going to try and place him with his mom, but she did not want him. She said that he was a delinquent, a thief, and too much trouble. So they tried to find a suitable foster family to take him in, but there were none available. Because they were all taking care of the other siblings. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was probably filled <laughs> a lot with of kids. children. Yeah. yeah. But he couldn't stay at Bay Village since they only fulfill short-term commitments. He was transferred to the Victor Cullen home and escaped shortly after. Billy decided that he was going to turn his life around. And even though he was now considered a fugitive, he got a job at the Quality Inn. He found an interest in art and focused on night classes. The owner let him sleep in one of the storage closets as long as he didn't bother anyone. And he didn't see his girlfriend for months. Um, he basically tried to keep her in the dark while he was trying to... Better himself? Yeah. Okay. And he didn't want to get her involved for... Until, like, he felt comfortable with, like, I've saved up this money. I've, you know... He can provide something. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like he's trying. He is. Very, yeah. like, honest effort. So after they were able to see each other again, they talked about running away together. And then the girlfriend, you know, she was like, I want to do things the right way. If we leave together, like, I want us to be able to have, like, a good future. So she told her mom. And her mom, like, she knew him already because he had already been going over there and eating, watching TV, and spending time with them. And so she liked Billy. So when her mom found out, she told them to come over and she wanted to talk to them. She basically offered him to move in with them. And I was like, okay, well, if you guys want to be together, you can live here um, you can keep working, you can go to school, and just try to better yourself until you guys are ready to move out. That was a nice offer. It really was, yeah. She, I'm sure she didn't want to see her daughter take I think off, she, and so that was smart of her. To be yeah. Like, no, you can come here. She knew. She was mm -hmm. like, I don't want to lose my daughter, so... See, that's what, what a good wants. mom does. Yeah, I know. Let's see, why can't Billy's mom do something nice like that? She's an awful person. Mm-hmm. Billy was skeptical because obviously he hadn't had good experiences with adults in the past. And so he kind of was just like, she's going to turn me over to the police as soon as she can. And that's true. I'm sure there's trust issues because his mom didn't even want him. Yeah. So he's like, how would somebody else who's not even my mom want to bring me in? Probably didn't believe she was probably just a good person. Exactly. And, you know, the foster families that he did have, they abused him and they just used him for horribly, horribly. too. Yeah. 
So I don't really blame him for having trust issues, you know, but turns out that she actually did take care of him and she treated him like a son by giving him his own room. She like tucked him in at night and bought him his favorite foods and he was like really happy. She tucked him in at night? How old is he? He was younger than 15, so... Oh, so he was still really young. Okay. Yeah. They don't say, like, what age he was at this point. I was like, is she tucking in a 19 Like, what <laughs> no. kind of shenanigans is this? Oh, no. <laughs> That's strange, but he was still pretty young. Yeah. So one night, Carl shows up, right? And he found out where he was living from Ruth and his mom. Billy ended up telling Ruth and his mom, like, about where he was staying so they didn't worry about him. And so that's how Carl found out, because he wouldn't have known about his girlfriend and stuff. So... Do they wrote Billy into this massacre? Oh, Jennifer's shaking her head, so I feel like that's a yes. (laughs) Well, Billy was surprised to see them, and he was actually, like, happy to see that they were okay, and even offered to give them money and clothes. He's like, this is my family, like, I want to help them, right? But everyone warned Everyone warned him. They were like, do not get involved with them. They're just going to cause trouble and you're getting your life on the right track. So just don't risk it. Yeah. He was just like, well, I love my family. I love my brothers and I want to help them. It's that blood is thicker than water. Yeah. Sometimes. So Carl convinced him that since he was a fugitive as well, because remember, he really is. He left, he escaped that Victor Cullen house. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was only a matter of time until he was going to be locked up again. And so he convinced him to join them while they were on the run. And he did. So now there's three brothers and one of the brothers' boyfriends. Yeah. And three of them have escaped, right? Well, at this point, they're all fugitives. (laughs) Oh, that's true. Even Billy, huh? Yeah. Yeah, this is not going in a good direction. No, it's Mm -hmm. not. It doesn't start out good and it doesn't. doesn't end good either. They drove around Maryland and Pennsylvania, committing multiple break-ins to obtain cash, food, clothes, and weapons. And the plan was for them to make it to Florida so they could see the ocean and live a good life. On Thursday, May 10th, 1973, they were near McConnellsburg, Pennsylvania, stealing a pickup truck. Richard Wayne Miller was a witness to this theft, and he basically chased them in his 1968 Chevy Supersport, and he was only 19 years old. By Monday, May 14th, 1973, they were now in Richard Miller's car, and they arrived in Georgia of Seminole County, and Richard was now missing. We're going to end part one there. Hey, I knew it would be a two-parter. I had faith. So we're going to release part two tomorrow. Get ready. Because I just know, like, with two-parters, sometimes you want to know what happens yeah. immediately after. We talked about the... Their backstories. The right? backstories. We're all pretty terrible. Yeah. We like to know the history of why somebody could possibly commit these types of crimes. Yeah. It doesn't excuse anything, obviously, but it does make you sad to hear, like, this was someone's life, and you can kind of understand how someone becomes uh, not a killer, but just a person who doesn't care about themselves and doesn't care about other people and then really doesn't have any empathy. Or how maybe he did have empathy and then just after being beaten down so many times and rejected, then that just closes something off in a person. Yeah. Possibly. 
Yeah. It, it does make you think about if things were different for these kids, would this have ever happened or would they be like on this life path? And my opinion is that no, for a lot of cases, I think that people, I think there are some serial killers who are just born, like they say, a bad seed. There's just something missing and they're just almost evil from a very young age. You can see it. Then there's people who are created. I believe that society creates some serial killers just by the way they're treated, by their families, by school systems, the public, their peers. Yeah. I believe it can create it. Not that it's an excuse at all, but I definitely... Like you become a product of the cards that you're dealt, right? Yeah. Like if you're constantly in this never-ending foster care system... People that don't care about you, so yeah. then why would you care about other people? This is what you're shown. Like, people don't care about you, yeah. you know? And this is how I should treat other people because this is how, like, I was treated. Again, we don't agree with it because there's people that grew up in awful situations and they lead very productive lives and they're kind to other people. They're not violent, but it seems like some people are susceptible to this in the right environment. Or the wrong environment, you know? The right, wrong environment, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so next episode, we're going to get into the crime, the massacre, and it doesn't get better. Okay. Anything else? I think we should just hop on to part two if we can. So So follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Freshly Brewed Noir. Leave us a review. Rate us five stars. Send us an email at FreshlyBrewedNoir at gmail.com if you have any show ideas. And until next time. Stay caffeinated. Get hobbies. And don't murder people. Bye. Bye.